Can I suggest that you keep your Bibles open at page uh, 934, okay, as we later look at this passage. It's funny, isn't it, how um, God works. Um, I had very little contact with Ben through the last week, and uh, he didn't tell me at all that he was going to start with jokes. But uh, as I was looking at this passage for tonight, I thought, well, it's all a bit grim, isn't it? Um, and uh, is there something I can do to lighten the mood before we get into the grim bits? So uh, just have a listen to this, and you may find it amusing, you may not. We've all got different sense of humour. There was a little girl, and uh, she was of primary school age, and she was talking to her teacher about whales, not the country, but the large sea creature. The teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human being because although it was a very large mammal, its throat was too small. Well, the little girl stated that Jonah was swallowed by the whale. The teacher became irritated and repeated that it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a person. The little girl stated... When I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. What if Jonah went to hell, the teacher replied. Then you can ask him, she said. (laughs) Out of the mouths of children and babes. Wonderful wisdom. Okay, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at this word written by Micah all those years ago... We thank you that your word doesn't just give us historical facts, but gives us guidance on how we can live our lives today. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire these words and help me to speak the words that you want us to hear tonight. Amen. Don't know uh, how much uh, you know about Micah, if I can have the first slide, thank you. Um, I didn't know a huge amount about it when I started uh, this sermon, you might say. Uh, I probably don't know much when I finished it, but uh, I thought we would uh, start with a couple of minutes introduction to see what was it actually all about and when was it written. So, it was uh, written in the days of the kings of Jothan, Ahaz and Hezekiah, who were kings of Judah. It was written somewhere between the period of 742 and 686 BC. It was written when the state of Israel was a divided kingdom. There was the northern and southern kingdom. It was a wealthy society, so in some ways it was similar to ours. It was wealthy and prosperous, but it was godless, a secular society. There was corruption of the ordinary people, of the leaders, and of the religious leaders as well. So that is uh, something uh, about its general uh, teaching and general nature. Um, Within it, uh, we get warnings and threads of judgment and a promise Uh, in three sections. The commentators divide the book up into three sections. The first section, chapter uh, cycle, what they call cycle, the first cycle is found in chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 
13, where Israel is threatened with exile, that means to be taken out of their country, because of their sin, but the Lord will gather the remnant of people who don't sin and who repent into Jerusalem, who will survive the siege, and the Lord will become their king. The second cycle is found in chapters 3 through to chapters 5, verse 15, where Micah states that the leadership is corrupt, so the Lord threatens to dismantle Jerusalem, chapter 3, 1 to 12. But the Lord also promises to lift Jerusalem high above the nations, in chapter 4, and to gather the remnant within Jerusalem's walls, chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And then to send a ruler as the Messiah for this purified people who will lead them to victory, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. And of course, traditionally, that has been what people have identified as the prophecy looking towards Jesus. And then the third cycle is uh, chapter 6 through to chapter 7. The fabric of the nation is becoming threadbare in chapter 6, 1 to 16. It's unravelling in chapter 7. But the chosen remnant of God's people will be forgiven and saved by God in chapter 7, verses 8 to 20. Now I think it's uh, good uh, for us to remind ourselves that the God of Israel the God of Micah, is the same God that we worship and follow today. Sometimes I think we tend to think that the Old Testament God is a Mark 1 version and that the New Testament God is a Mark 2 version. No, God the Father is the same. So it's good to understand how he acts with regards to his people's lives and to ours if we're followers of Jesus. And the recurring theme throughout Micah is that the people of God, remember these are the people of God, including ordinary people, the rulers, the religious priests and officials, are corrupt. They break God's covenant. And as a result, there will be judgment that will take the form of physical actions. However, God will forgive and provide a remnant salvation. And it's good to be reminded that God hates sin and the results of sin because it affects people's relationships with him and each other. So this book was written about their time, but I think it also applies to us if we're God's people. So let's turn to chapter 6 page 934, and have a look at how these themes are seen with reference to this third cycle. Now, I think the first thing to sort of clear up is, who is actually speaking in chapter 6? Who is speaking? Well, we see here that God is speaking, and Micah, and it sort of alternates. Verses 1 to uh, 5 of chapter 6, it is God is speaking. Because look what it says in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Now this text is in the form of a law court. And God is bringing his case against his people in these first five verses. So it's God speaking. Hear what the Lord says. The hearing of the court is to be out in the open air, before the presence of mountains and foundations of the earth. There are to be witnesses 
to this judgment. And God wants his covenant people to be judged in the presence of the natural world and not in secret. Now God's world includes the natural world, mountains, valleys and people. And the actions of God, whether that be in creation, through the covenant relationship with his people, to the coming of Christ and the gospel, has always been in openness, accessible to all. We read of this in Acts 26, when Paul speaks to King Agrippa, stating that Jesus was judged before a court and there were people present. But the point of the mountains and hills is that they have been there from the time of creation. These mountains of hills have witnessed the actions of God and how he dealt with his people. They were witnesses to the creation of the covenant relationship. Three times the Lord declared through Moses, I call heaven and earth to witness on each occasion as a witness against his people if they break the covenant relationship. Now, don't we often say, you know, we often say, don't we, well, cool, this building could speak great words. It's witnessed events through history. Or we go to that mountain place, don't we, or that place on a valley where there's been a battle and we say, God, those stones, what tales those stones could tell us. And it's the same here. The whole of creation comes under the authority of God. And we should remember this as we consider how we use and steward the planet. This was important to God's people to realise this because of the prevalence of worship of other gods like the Baal gods, the fertility gods, the cults of the time. And we can recognise the same temptations today when the earth is worshipped in New Age movements or by conservationists and not the actual creator who created the world. I love the world. I'm an environmentalist, I suppose, to some, some extent. I love our world. But it's a world of creation. It's not the creator. So what have the people done then that has so offended their God? Well, in the earlier passages of Micah, there are lists of crimes, sins and failures. But that's not what we get here. If you look at verses 3 to 5, we see that God is speaking like a father to his people. Look what it says in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counselled, what Balaam, son of Boah, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgah, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." And so we see here that God is pleading with them like a father would to his children or a husband to a wife. God is concerned about the relationship to such a point that he turns the question on its head and says to them, what have I done? How have I wearied you? How have I burdened you? Why are you bored with me? And the people fail to answer. And so God says, answer me. 
answer me. We see a similar situation written by Isaiah in chapter 43, verses 22 to 24. You have not called upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honoured me with sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God's people had become bored with the mechanics and routines of worship and so had now defaulted on observing their obligations. They had more interesting things to do. They lived in a city of Jerusalem, which was an amazing city, full of wealth, full of pleasures, and they had lost the plot and the passion. And so they had wearied the Lord. The prophet Malachi explains how this had happened. He writes in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? So a good question for us is, have we become bored with worshipping God? Are we bored with daily prayer, with worship and reading God's work? Do we go along with our culture and society, which says that all are equal, all are righteous, there's no moral commandments given by God? Or are we still looking at the righteousness of God as the standard by which we live? Now, I seem to be repeating these questions in several of the sermons I've been preaching recently. I'm asking questions like, are we on fire for God? Do we want to know Jesus more? Do we want to experience the supernatural God who provided saving actions for his people? Because this is what God points to in verses 4 and 5. Look in verses 4 and 5. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you up out of Egypt, where they experienced his miraculous events, like the separation of the Red Sea, the provision of food in the desert, that manna that appeared every morning for them. God wants them to concentrate upon his saving acts to motivate them to restoration and renewed relationships based upon gratitude for all that he'd done for them. And so God refers to Egypt, Moses, Aaron and Miriam. And these names and events would have brought back significant memories of God's saving actions in the history of his people's deliverance. And what God is asking them to remember, uh, and God is asking them to remember this, But this remembrance is a process that doesn't just involve calling these events to mind, sort of fleetingly, but of actualizing the past into the present. It brings events so vividly into their experience that we can take part in them afresh. In other words, it equals participation. And God wanted them to participate in Balak and Balaam, which took place at Shittim at the beginning of Israel's triumphant march into the Promised Land. 
We read of this in Joshua 24, verses 9 to 10, which says this, When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Boah, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. And that, of course, is God speaking. And we see God at work throughout the book of Joshua, a God of actions and not just words. So if they are to exercise their memory correctly, they will know the saving acts of the Lord from personal experience and not just academic awareness. And that is what God wants of us today. We may well know the Bible, but do we know the God who acts Do we have a relationship with Jesus that actively involves doing his works here on earth? Remember Jesus' words that are written in Matthew 7, verse 22, where he's speaking of the time of judgment. He says, many will come in my name, saying, I prophesied in my name. But Jesus states, I don't know you. Jesus won't test us on on biblical knowledge at the judgment seat but he will say whether he knows us or not. So let us revisit those times when God acted in our lives. Perhaps you saw a friend come to faith, someone healed. You heard a prophetic word that spoke to you a couple of years ago. You heard the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. Well, relive these events because they will strengthen your faith. Let us remember the saving act of God. But what does God require when mankind has separated himself from him? Well, look at verse 6 to 8, because here we see it's Micah speaking again to the people of Jerusalem. So in verses 6 through to 8, it's Micah speaking, and he's speaking to these people who live in Jerusalem, a city that was prosperous, It was a capitalist centre for the area. There was wealth there, there was learning there, there was the beautiful and mighty Solomon's Temple, the centre of Jewish religion. Well, look what he says within verse 7. If I can get it. Yes, here's what he says. Will the laws be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So what we're seeing here is that there is now become recognition of personal sin and transgression. So how can I, as a religious person who lives in Jerusalem, a part of this capitalistic monetary society, get right with God? Well, Micah gives them the answer. Within the capitalist system, everyone has a price. So logically, by offering up thousands of offerings, because everyone has a price, even God. And we see this worked out to its logical conclusion with reference to the offering, my firstborn. A clear reference to Baal worship and the offering of Isaac by Abraham, even though that was a demonstration of obedience implicit in faith. So what then does God require of mankind who has sinned before him? Does he require thousands of sacrifices, even the sacrifice of their firstborn? Well, clearly not. Look at verse 8, one of the most famous verses found in Micah. This is what the Lord requires. 
we seem to have lost the PowerPoint. This is what the Lord requires. He requires uh, to people to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. That is what he requires. Now, for this to be possible, God requires them and for us to give up ourselves to him, our lives, and love. Because the three aspects of justice, kindness, and humility can't be separated. They're interrelated one with another. But for them to be possible, humility is required. A dependence upon the living God for all aspects of life and for forgiveness for our sins. Recognising that we can do nothing by our own actions. So the first requirement then of people who are wanting to come back to God is to walk in humility. God speak to us, God can speak to us through his creation, through his commandments or conscience. And it's a call for repentance and faith, for these are necessary if we're to live with justice, mercy and humility. So that is what God requires But what about the people here of Jerusalem? Is this what they're actually like? Well, we return back to Micah again. Look what he says in verse 11 and 12. Uh, He says, he talks about the economic condition. He says this, Shall I acquit a man who with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights, Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. So what he's saying in these two verses is that the state of the economic order of Jerusalem has been corrupted by the rich, and by their example has gone throughout the city. The violence of the few led to the dishonesty of the many. And where there's brutality and ruthlessness... It becomes a place where people lie and deceive for their survival. So we see here that where the God mammon rules, people become hard and ruthless to maximise profits. And surely we see evidence of this throughout the world today and in our own country and in the history of the church as well. But look at the results of this economic activity of Jerusalem, this corruption of their society. God will judge it in practical ways. Look at verses 13 through to 16. Look what he says. This is God speaking to his people again. There will be practical judgments. They will be ruined, verse 13. Hunger and bad banking systems. Any bells going off? Bad banking systems? It's relevant, isn't it? There will be no harvests. Verse 14. There will be contempt for you and you will be mocked because you follow the laws of evil kings. So there's a practical outworking of the sin you people of Jerusalem are committing. Now, of course, you'll say, Nigel, we don't live under this old covenant. We live under the new covenant, the death of Jesus upon the cross. Well, that is absolutely true, of course. But I do believe that we still see God's natural laws at work. Where there is corruption, people suffer. Look at Greece today. 
where rulers impose evil laws which populations submit to, then we see brutal societies. And we've seen that in many African countries in the last 50 years or so. God's ways, God's commandments were given so that society as a whole may live in peace and harmony together. A lesson that we need to remember as we see our new laws being passed by our politicians. Are they following the laws of God or are they going their own way? And I don't often uh, refer to books in my sermons, but I'd like to refer you to one book tonight uh, by a guy called Alastair Petrie, who spoke in Norwich a couple of weeks ago, and he's written a book called Releasing Heaven on Earth, which looks at the issues of sin, both past and present, and how it keeps individuals, communities, whole cities and countries from experiencing the fullness that God intends for them. So how then should we live? Well, verse 8 encourages us, doesn't it, by this verse to actively seek to do what is right in the eyes of God. That is, to keep his commands, to see how Jesus came not only to abolish the law, not to abolish the law, but to complete it. So look at his Sermon on the Mount, if you're in any doubt concerning how Jesus wants us to live within a world that doesn't worship the living God. Look at Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7, because that gives us the basis for all our practical actions. Remember, Jesus stated that he will send his Holy Spirit to help us to live as his disciples. So to do what is right, to love mercy, walk humbly with your God. This, of course, means that there's no room for pride, no room for self-satisfaction, but rather a complete dependence upon God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And if we want to see our nation turned, if we want to see our city turned towards God, then we need to call upon God for revival and renewal. And that will only happen with repentance. All the historic revivals point us to the fact that they start within the church by the church repenting and calling upon the name of the Lord. Well, that's been pretty grim stuff, isn't it? But uh, I do want to finish on a positive note. So if you turn over in your Bibles to chapter 7 and look at verses uh, 18 the last two verses of Micah's book. And uh, Micah's written of this dreadful situation that God's people are in. He's written of God's response to this, but he then finishes with a great statement concerning his God. Look what he says. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah's God pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his people, showing unfailing love, has compassion on us and remains faithful to us 
as he did to their ancestors. Micah prophesied the coming of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 2. And so this, of course, points us to the coming of Jesus and Jesus dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. So we can finish then on a high note. Yes, there is hope for a sinful people who have separated themselves from the living God by their own actions. If they repent, if they believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died to take the price of their sins, but a God who didn't stay dead, but rose again and lives today to help us all live for eternity. Amen.